0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's word is in, comes from John 10, verses 1 through 21. If you have a pew Bible, it's actually page 896. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he was brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon. It is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word.
1: It's good to be with you, and it's good to, you know, let me just publicly say it's great to be back uh, and to see so many of you, um, and it's such a privilege for me to be here now in this pulpit and to preach to you, many of you who had a role and a hand in, in teaching me, um, but before, before we get started, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to do that together for those of us who can and who came this morning. Pray, God, for this message I am to deliver, that you would uh, help me to articulate well what you're teaching to us in John 10, and that we would go out from this place and from our homes um, sharing the good news. ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin... I'd like to share with you some fascinating observations from a book by theologian Kevin Van Hooser, entitled Hearers and Doers. He makes the case that Western culture has unknowingly replaced Christianity with new systems of faith. He calls them cults, in his words. In explaining this, he offers up an example that's relevant for us, which is the health and wellness industry. He references one researcher who notes that the faithful of both church and gym routinely go to special buildings, eat special food, and take part in shared rituals. He also notes that groups offer, that these groups of health offer a lot more than simply health. Van Hooser writes, Belonging to a food cult also affords psychological benefits. It offers group identity, cohesion, and it functions, again, as a substitute for religion because these groups arguably replace what religions once did by prescribing food and rituals. Furthermore, they provide meaning in confusing situations, and they give us moral guidelines and comfort. Of course, for us, what's important to note today is that these groups have leaders. Van Hooser cites another author when she comments on how these groups and uh, these health and wellness groups are filled with wellness Pharisees. She says, These wellness Pharisees display a self-righteous superiority toward those who do not take part in their health-seeking practices. And perhaps you've met someone like that, uh, and you might think that such an attitude like that may repulse people. You know, who wants to surround themselves by people who think they're better than you because of how long they can jog or how far they can bike and so forth? But it's that very attitude that can create groups of belonging, and it's the attitude that can gain a following as well. But let's not conclude that something as big and large and influential as the health and wellness industry was built by nefarious leaders. It is predominantly the case that leaders wielding influence are well-intended and genuinely care and want what's best for those who follow them. However, even well-intended leaders can bring harm to those who listen to them. And here's here's a, a short example. Horace Fletcher was one of the earliest health food enthusiasts of the 20th century, so this is over 100 years ago. And he created a diet program which was called Fletcherizing. The central idea of this diet was this. Chew your food a hundred times, then spit it out. Chew your food a hundred times and spit it out. This way, he claimed, you get the nutrients but not the bulk. This diet became so popular that high-profile figures of the day, such as Upton Sinclair, Henry James, and John D. Rockefeller, adopted it and advocated for it. Well, as you can imagine, and as you heard, th- this is a really unhealthy way of eating. And unfortunately, Henry James, one of its advocates, lost his life because of it. One author wrote of Mr. James, that when a doctor at last persuaded him to return to a normal way of eating, he could no longer digest, and his nervous system had been undermined by years of malnutrition. Mr. Fletcher thought he was doing a public good and helping, but he did a great harm to Henry James and likely others. So here's my point. Our world is filled with leaders. Our world is filled with leaders. And the sub-world of health and wellness is only one out of many with leaders asking us to follow them. Leaders who promise in one form or another abundant life, belonging, a place to be known. Leaders who are well-intentioned but can be a harm to the church that is you and me. And why is the case? Why is this the case? Well, they, like us, can look and see that there's a need in the world. They can see that there are people asking for belonging, people searching to be cared for. So let's turn now to John 10. I hope you kept it open there. And consider our shepherd. Something that you probably noticed as the passage was read is that there's a lot of comparing and contrasting going on. And there's a reason for this. Our passage today was given with the audience and events of chapter 9 in mind. And remember when we heard from Travis last week, chapter 9 also compares and contrasts characters as well. In the story of the blind man, we have Pharisees who treat him harshly and oppose Jesus, and you have the blind man himself, who progressively understands who Jesus is until finally he breaks out in worship of Jesus. And so the people who should have been able to recognize Jesus don't and the pharisees they can't explain they can they can't accept that an outsider and someone of such low social standing understands something that they don't and so they cast him out well in chapter 10 jesus doesn't hold back his criticisms against the pharisees in this passage jesus at once explains who he really is while also shedding light on who the pharisees really are so let's take a closer look at verses 1 through 6 And here I think the point being made is that there is one shepherd of the sheep, only one rightful shepherd of the sheep. And there's two things to note in this section. How someone enters the sheepfold matters, and how someone relates to the sheep matters. In the first verse, we encounter the first character, and what's plainly said to us is that this label of robber is given to him because of his method of entrance. He climbs in by another way, that's verse 1. And by avoiding the door, he's already showing his malicious intent. He's already signaling to us that he doesn't belong. And then in verse 5, we see that even if he were to get into the sheepfold, his relationship with the sheep would be suspect. The sheep wouldn't follow him. They'd flee from him. Verse 5, the sheep do not know the voice of strangers. So that's simple enough, right? So when enters by the sheepfold by another way, and the sheep don't know him, They are not the shepherd, they're robbers. And conversely, again, we have the other character, this one who enters by the door in verse 2. And likewise, his appropriate entrance signifies that he is the rightful shepherd. In addition, we get these intimate and and warm details in verses 3 and 4. I'll start in verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. There is clearly a relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And each of these unique details in verses three to four in a sense serve as mounting evidence that this is the shepherd. I want to say more more on these details but I'll do that at the end. So there's only two options provided by Jesus through this parable. For those who Make it into the sheepfold, they are either a shepherd or a thief. So how do people react? Well, in one way they don't, because they don't understand. They don't yet grasp the points that Jesus is trying to make. They don't see the contrast Jesus is making between himself and the Pharisees. Something which is made clear in our next section, verses 7 to 18. But at this point, I want to take some time to emphasize those contrasts. And the first one is a grammatical one. There is some brilliant stuff going on here by John and providentially by God to make this work out. In verse 4, a deliberate contrast and callback to the Pharisees in verse 9 is made. It's the use of a Greek word that can either mean to expel out or bring out. This word has a range of meaning, and in the span of 15 or so verses, that range of meaning is put on display for us. So this is chapter 9, verses 34. We read, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. In chapter 10, the same word is used in verse 4, which reads this, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So you see the difference. In one instance, The verb is used to illustrate the Pharisees' harsh treatment of the blind man. And in the other instance, we have the shepherd who brings out his sheep. You have that loving, tender care of the shepherd. And so this gets at the second thing I want to mention in terms of contrast. The Pharisees should have been the shepherds of God's people, the faithful shepherds of God's people. The Old Testament as you likely know, is full of references of shepherding sheep and the relationship between them. God himself is spoken of as shepherd. And so the spiritual dynamic that Jesus is drawing on should have quickly come to to mind for them. But that's not all. The irony thickens as there's a specific passage in scripture that could have come to mind, not passages Ezekiel 34. And I wish we could get into this a little bit more, but I'm just going to read Uh, portions of that passage, and I want you to note some of the parallels to what's going on in John 10. So this is Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. What this passage in Ezekiel and this Greek word do for us is help us see that harshness and selfishness was not only a problem for Israel's old religious leaders, it was a problem for the Jews of Jesus' day as well. And as I tried to show you in the opening of my sermon, it's a present problem for the church as well. Obviously, a shepherd is needed, and what Jesus proceeds to do in verses 7 to 18 is present himself as the shepherd of the people of God. Let's turn to our second section here. In this section... Jesus repeats a pair of metaphorical I am statements. And already we've encountered some of them in John. Just a few Sundays ago, Bruce preached from John 8, in which we have a monumental one. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And just for reference, after John 10, we're still going to get some more. We'll have three. And let's remember that Jesus' purpose with these statements is to teach us his true identity. So let's turn to the first one and learn what is Jesus saying about himself in verses 7 to 9. So what's so amazing about Jesus' teaching is that in explaining the parable, he kind of blows it up. In verse 7, right before, or right after everyone is just standing there confused because they don't understand, Jesus comes out and says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now I think it would have been reasonable to hear this and think what are you talking about? How is this more helpful than what we just heard? The door was not personified in verses 1 to f- excuse me 1 to 5. So what does this mean? Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is presenting himself presenting his utter uniqueness as shepherd. Remember in the parable how someone entered in the sheepfold was important. Jesus here is still saying the same thing. How you get into the sheepfold matters. But what Jesus does is move beyond the parable. What Jesus is teaching is that he doesn't merely hold the right to come into the sheepfold. He himself is the only means of entrance into the sheepfold. Listen closely again to verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Some of the key words here are part of a prepositional phrase by me. This phrase signals to us, along with the I am statement, that Jesus is the totally unique, unparalleled, and unrivaled means of entrance into his sheepfold. But consider the rest of verse 9, which tells us why we would want to be a part of the sheepfold. Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastor. The first is plainly clear to us. Salvation is the most important, beautiful gift among the others. And in speaking about going in and out and finding pastor, such things are meant to convey safety and nourishment. And it makes sense, doesn't it? At first, when I was reading this passage in this verse, I wasn't sure how going in and out was a blessing. I didn't quite understand But think of our present situation. Even now, there are restraints on going in and out. Such restraints are implemented to convey to us that things are not safe. When Jesus speaks of finding pasture, this brings to mind Psalm 23. I I love the song you chose, Drew, um, because it definitely gets at that. And the figure of speech there is also safety, but it's also food, sustenance, nourishment. So to put it concisely... Verse 9 is clear that salvation, safety, and sustenance can be had in Jesus. Now, we need to be careful about how we understand this, and I'll explain why in a moment. In verse 10, along with verse 8, we see the contrast continue to be made by Jesus. And in verse 10, one of the starkest contrasts is made between himself and the Pharisees. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In effect, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees can only offer death, whereas Jesus offers life, abundant life. Amazingly, this mention of having abundant life suggests that Jesus doesn't merely preserve life, but offers the best kind of life possible. As one commentator said, The emphasis on abundant life in this verse could also be understood as paradise. So there's an important application I like to draw at this point from verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, I said that those who enter the sheepfold through Jesus will have salvation, safety, and sustenance. And verse 10 is in agreement. Jesus offers abundant life. Now, when I say that salvation, safety, and sustenance can be had in Jesus, what I mean is that salvation, safety, and sustenance are consummately had in Jesus. Or to put it another way, all those things which Jesus promises will ultimately be had in the new heavens and new earth. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't experience salvation now or don't experience safety or don't have our needs met. As many of you personally know, the Lord does do those things. He does meet those needs. And we absolutely, as believers, experience abundant life now. Perhaps the distinction I'm trying to make is better made by someone else. One author puts it this way, Jesus gives us abundant life that is independent of circumstances or material wealth. Jesus gives us abundant life that is independent of circumstances or material wealth. My point in mentioning this distinction from this text is that there are leaders who are out to make a profit out of ignoring this distinction. At best, they blur the lines. Remember what's taking place here in our passage. You have Pharisees who were supposed to be God's shepherd, God's shepherds over his people. Pharisees who were genuinely convinced that their interpretation and application of Scripture was the right way and naturally were getting others to try and live like them. But as we just read in verse 9, Their approach, their offer, their mistreatment of others, it only leads to death. So today, here's the application. The church faces a very similar danger. Today, there are modern religious influencers who claim to provide a pundit life. And who am I talking about? I'm talking about prosperity preachers. And I didn't know this until researching for this sermon. But John 10.10 is one of those key verses in support of the prosperity gospel. That's what makes these leaders so dangerous, is like the Pharisees, they're armed with Bible passages, theology, and half-truths. Consider this this example from a pamphlet I pulled. It reads this, I have faith, I'm a believer. I believe, I receive my healing, and my faith makes me whole. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me. My faith puts that power into active operation in my body. Disease has no choice. If healing does not occur, the problem is a person's lack of faith. Now, like me, you probably heard some truth in that statement. But there are dangerous implications for this way of thinking. To this preacher who wrote this pamphlet, the implicit claim is that abundant life, that is, living a disease-free life, can be had right now in Jesus. And if that disease doesn't ever lift, doesn't ever leave your body, then you just haven't believed enough. That's dangerous. That is a false gospel. So for us, we have to be careful not to be deceived by popular preachers who claim that they can grant to you God's abundant life that is dependent on circumstances or material wealth. Just because... Well-intended teachers cite verses, pray in Jesus' name, doesn't automatically mean they're teaching the gospel of abundant life. All right, I could go on, but let's keep going. Let's keep moving. Um, And let's consider the next I am statement. I am the good shepherd. Because this is really the focal point of the passage. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is crucial to note. No to Jesus' hearers, John to, to John's audience, the people of the cultural era, they would know that shepherds risk their lives. It's part of the profession. In verse 12, we saw that there's mention of wolves. And in the first couple of verses, we see that thieves and robbers also pose a risk to the sheep and shepherd. What would be surprising is that Jesus is describing his deliberate intention to lay his life down for the sheep. In their minds, people of the day, they could affirm, any decent shepherd was prepared to lay their life down for the sheep. But what Jesus is saying is that being a good shepherd is defined by deliberately laying his life down for the sheep. As Dr. Carson comments, far from being accidental, Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. Now, in defining shepherding this way, naturally those who don't measure up end up looking like replicas, like cheap replicas to the real thing. And so we see another comparison in verses 12 and 13. This time Jesus compares the Pharisees to hired hands, people who are just in it for the money. And when danger presents itself, they flee. That's verse 13. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So the paraphrase, they don't care. They don't care. And in the remainder of this section, Jesus, in continuing to to present himself as the good shepherd, moves on from comparing himself to the Pharisees and instead focuses on four things that distinguish him uniquely as the good shepherd. The first, mm, excuse me, the first, his unique relationship with the sheep. The second, his role in defining the sheep. The third, his relationship with the Father. And fourth, his authority as the Good Shepherd. And again, I have to say, if we had time, it would be great to, to talk about all those four things, but I'm going to focus on the fourth here. And my reason for doing this is that in verses 17 to 18, uh, verses 17 to 18 provide additional insight into how all of this relates to the gospel You see, at this point in Jesus' ministry, the crucifixion and the resurrection, they haven't taken place. But Jesus predictively shares how he has the power, he has the authority himself to face crucifixion and resurrection. Look at verse 18. He puts it succinctly there. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The gospel is true and possible because the good shepherd had the authority to lay his own life down and take it back up again. And let's be clear about this, uh, about the gospel too. Paul neatly presents it to us in 1 Corinthians when he writes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That Christ died for our sins is what is meant when Jesus here teaches that he lays his life down for the sheep. In a word, Jesus had to face death in order to bring life. Jesus had to face death in order to bring life. And the amazing biblical truth to be drawn out from this passage is Christ's substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in the place of his people, to bring life to his people. It's you and me. Something only Jesus could do. So in some, verses 7 to 18, teaches that Jesus alone is our good shepherd. Jesus alone is our good shepherd. Already, we read portions from Ezekiel 34, And what I'd like to do now is share another portion, the second half actually of that same chapter. As I read it, again, note the parallels with our passage, as well as the promise that Jesus is fulfilling. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. In John 10, Jesus teaches that he is the shepherd of Ezekiel 34. He is God himself caring for God's people. In verses 19 to 21, we have a pair of responses to Jesus' teaching. And by this point, the accusations that Jesus gets are commonplace. Once again, Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed. And what these folks demonstrate those who are calling him demon-possessed, is that they don't belong to the sheepfold. If they did belong, they would know him and follow him like the blind man did. However, the second group is still a bit ambiguous. Uh, They don't fall down and worship as the blind man did, but they at the very least recognize the validity of his teaching because of his interaction with the blind man. And so two questions are posed by the crowd. And in essence, th- these are the questions. Is the first we see. The first group says, he's, he's demon-possessed. Why listen to him? The second group says, he opened the eyes of the blind. Why wouldn't we listen to him? Those are the two questions. Why listen to him versus why wouldn't we? And so with that in mind, it's, it's really only natural for me to ask you guys a few questions. For his teaching about himself requires a response so the first and most, important, most pertinent question to be asked is is Jesus your shepherd is Jesus your shepherd have you entered his sheepfold by faith and recognized his sacrificial death on your behalf let's remember Jesus is clear there is only one way in and it's through him There's only one way in, and it's through him. Being a nice person, doing good deeds, reading your Bible, none of that cuts it. You have to come in through him. You need Jesus. Well, if you do have Jesus as your shepherd, as I think is the case for most of us, I've got some final things to say to you. And I feel a burden again to address once more the threat of false shepherds in the world. The church as God's flock is still at risk today. We aren't excluded from believing harmful things. And already, I have cited examples from the health and wellness industry, as well as the prosperity gospel movement. What I didn't touch, and intentionally so because I want to come back here, are the examples of politicians, social media influencers, podcasters, actors, authors. We could go on. How many leaders there are in our world? So many. Now, don't get me wrong. Good leaders do exist. But in light of the context of this text and the contents of this text, I'm compelled to note that there are bad leaders and there are well-intended leaders who bring harm to those who follow them. And so part of my charge to you is to take inventory of those who hold influence over your life. And to that end, I have five questions for you. Um, The first is, what voices do you recognize? What voices do you recognize? Who do you turn to for guidance? Who gives you belonging? What is the abundant life they offer? What is the abundant life they offer? And is their offer contrary to the gospel? And here's a point of personal application for me as an Eric. As one of your pastors here at Westgate now, I'm called to lead and to shepherd as Christ did. Truly, I am an under shepherd of the great shepherd, and the abundant life I offer is not my own, but Christ's. He's the one who secured it, and He's the one who supplies it. So, in sharing all I have on carefully listening to leaders to discern if what they offer is helpful or harmful, what I'm inviting you to do is to hold me accountable to the truth of the gospel. I echo what Paul in Galatians says when he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's how important this is. All right, well, I don't want to make this message all about bad shepherds. So let my final words to you be on why Jesus as the good shepherd matters for you, all of you. And in doing so, I'd like to review verses 2 to 4. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So do you hear Jesus' heart toward his sheep? I love this detail in verse 3. He calls his own sheep by name. He calls his own sheep by name. Those who heard Jesus teach, they probably didn't think much of this because, contextually, shepherding during the day, they called their sheep out individually. But for us, this side of the cross, in light of the New Testament, these words are deeply personal. Deeply personal. Those who belong to Jesus are known by name to Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus are known by name to Jesus. They were known by name when he went to the cross. They were known by name when he rose from the dead. And they'll be known by name when he leads them into paradise. That's the kind of savior we have. That's the kind of shepherd we have, the relationship we have with him. It's that intimate. In Luke 10, just so you know what I'm saying is is biblical, after the disciples return and are rejoicing of the miracles God performed through them, Jesus tells them, He tells them, Jesus tells them to rejoice for another reason. This is Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice. That your names are written in heaven. Or as John refers to it in Revelation, the book of life. So, in saying all that, really what I'm trying to convey is that Jesus, for those who belong to him, they are known to him personally, intimately. Now, when we know Jesus as our shepherd, we're gifted with a relationship within a relationship. What I mean is that Jesus as shepherd is not only shepherd to individual sheep, right? But to the flock, the church. And the church is unlike any other group. It's local, global, and eternal. It's multicultural, multilingual, and transgenerational. And our shepherd himself desires, he desires that every nation, every tribe, every people and language would be numbered among his flock. To have Christ as our shepherd means to share a bond with people across borders, oceans, and time. It means belonging to a group uniquely cared for and cherished by God himself. And here's my final point to you, my final word to you. As you go about your day, as you all navigate the gradual reopening of schools and businesses, as you find yourself interacting with others more and more, share your shepherd. Share your shepherd. Through him, invite others into the sheepfold. As believers, this is our unique opportunity in this cultural moment. As we noted earlier, people are searching for belonging. They're asking to be cared for. They're looking to leaders. And what a joy it is to share, and to say with people, friend, I know someone. I know someone who cares. I know someone who knows me by name, who gives me a place to belong and Yes, even in the midst of tumultuous times, gives me abundant life. And perhaps like me, you can go on to say, I've looked elsewhere. I've tried finding abundant life in other things, in other people, through other means, but it can't be found. It can't be found anywhere else. Not forever. This abundant life to be had. It's not found in a thing, but in a person. And he's worthy of following. He's worthy of following. Well, if any of that is unclear, let me leave you with one thing. Jesus alone is the good shepherd who supplies salvation for his sheep. Jesus alone is the good shepherd who supplies salvation for his sheep. That's our hope. That's our comfort. That's the truth for us to carry out here and for us as we're sharing our shepherd to note this. Jesus alone is the good shepherd who supplies salvation for his sheep. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you again for this morning. For this opportunity to say that you are the good shepherd. That you do care for your people. That you do care for those who belong to you. That you've demonstrated such care by laying down your own life for us. And we look forward to that day, God, when you do bring your people into paradise. And Lord, we ask that you help us share you as the shepherd to a world that is hurting, to a world that is looking for belonging and for care. And that you would help us, God, stay the course to not to be led astray by other teachers, other small would-be shepherds of the world. Help us to note that you are the one we need to focus on, the one that we need to follow at all times. And I pray that this would take place in our church and for us in my own life in the days to come, especially as we face our season in this moment. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.